Uh, with that, we will turn our attention to God's Word together and, and look at our, our chapter in John as we've been going through this series. Uh, Simply Jesus, we've been journeying through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and it's been a fruitful series, and so we're not going to slow that down, if you will, today. We're going to continue into the rest of uh, chapter 11. Um, some, some Mother's Days, I do a Mother's Day sermon, and this year I just felt like we wanted to continue on in the book of John, uh, as our worship is about Jesus here. It's not that we don't want to honor moms, uh, but we should be honoring moms every Sunday, uh, every day, really. But um, I wrote this this morning. I looked up the history of Mother's Day, and I, I was just fascinated, and I shared with our team earlier, there's a little bit of irony with Mother's Day in general and how it came to be. And I only say that because if you look it up, which I'd encourage you to just look up the historical nature of how Mother's Day became to be a holiday, if you will, in our country. Uh, Anna, um, Anna Jarvis introduced Mother's Day. She didn't have any kids of her own. She did it as a way to honor and celebrate her mom, which some of us may know this historically. The white carnation is the flower, which was her mom's favorite that she gave her, and she kind of established that. But as it went on, she kind of grew disgusted, if you will, with the commercialization of the holiday, with all the candy, flowers, cards, all that went around with it, such as our culture kind of losing their way. So she was very upset about that and actually protested the very thing that she started and say people missed their meaning. So hopefully you don't lose sight of that. Hopefully we should just be grateful for what moms put into their children's care and grateful for um, women in general. But I wrote this this morning as just a reflection, kind of before I preach the sermon, I just wrote this. This is my heart for moms in our body of Christ and moms in general. So I'm just going to read it, and then I'll, I want to pray um, for all of us together. But this is, this is what I wrote this morning. Mother's Day is a special day we set aside to recognize moms. And it's a good thing, too, because moms are important. And I know that all of us had a mom. That's where we drew our life from. But not all of us may have had a relationship with our mom. I know that some of you are moms, but some of you are not. Maybe by choice, but for some of you, maybe not by your own choice. I know that within this room, there exist those who are in all categories of women. I know for some day, this day is joyous. A day to celebrate your mom or spend time with your children while being celebrated. And for some, this day is difficult. A day you grieve a mom who you didn't know, remember a mom who you did know and loved but is gone now, or be reminded of how you couldn't be a mom like you wanted. Like most of life, the same day can have such different perspectives. So here's what I would tell you on this day. Whether you are a mom or not, you are special. You have worth. Whether you knew your mom or didn't know your mom, there is a God who knows you. If you never received love from your mom, there is a God who loves you more than she ever could have. If you are a struggling mom who doesn't always get it right, and I'm sure there are those out there, there is a God who offers grace and hope in the struggle. If you are a mom that is weary, there is a God who offers more strength than you'll ever have. If you are a mom who is broken, there is a God who heals and redeems. If you are not a mom, there is a God who is a good father who loves, and he promised more fulfillment in knowing him in Christ than any earthly joy, including being a mom, could ever fulfill. 
regardless of your status quo, and you'll understand why I use that phrase in a moment here, know that God is bigger, greater, and more loving, and of greater worth than any mom here today, or any mom we ever had. This God has purpose for you, loves you, and can, and should, be brought glory through you. I just want to read uh, a few verses of what God says about what his promise to the children of Israel is, and then I'll pray for us together. This is what it says in Isaiah 66. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That is a promise for all who know Christ, that God is our great comfort. Let me pray for moms specifically and all of us together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are so good and loving. And Father, I thank you for my mom today. I thank you for a mom who raised me and raised me in the, in the faith. Thank you for grandmothers who did the same, who knew you. Thank you for my wife, who was a great mom to my kids. And Father, I thank you for all the moms and all of those that aren't moms that are represented here this morning, that you would bless them. Father, I thank you for the life that you've given all of us uniquely. For moms, there is a special way that they nurture their children, uh, a heart that they have that no one could understand. It's much like the heart that you have for us, though, a heart that is full of love and devotion, unconditionally so. And Father, I just pray for all of us that if we have a mom, we would celebrate her today. If we don't have a mom that that we're close to, that we would just worship you today. And Father, for those that are hurting because they could never be a mom, I pray that you would just give them your special comfort and grace today, that you'd be glorified and praised And we thank you and we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from verses 45 through 57. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. This amazing miracle. And here is the response of the people from this miracle. And it says in verse 45 this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. I want to pray for us, just a brief prayer. Say, God, would you just speak to our hearts this morning? You pray that prayer individually. I'll pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth. I pray now that you would just speak through me, speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would encourage us, that you would guide us. For those that don't know Christ, that they would know him today. For those that do know Christ, that they would grow in him today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So if I was going to ask you what your status quo was, I mentioned that earlier, what would you say? What is your status quo? That's a phrase we throw around a lot, but it's this Latin term that means your existing state of affairs. So if I was going to say, what is your current state of affairs like in your life? What is your status quo? Now, some of us might have a really good state of affairs. We might be in a good place. And this would be a combination, if you will, of spiritual and economical and physical and emotional and mental, all those things combined. What's my status quo? What's my state currently of my affairs? Some of us might have all our act together in those areas, and we might feel pretty confident. And some of us know we don't have a good status quo right now, and we desperately hope that it will be changed. When you come to John chapter 11 at the end, Jesus, and he did this, his whole earthly ministry, he challenged people's status quo all the time. As sure as he walked the earth in ministry, he challenged it. And in fact, our text today, it shows us this. If Jesus is to be followed, then my status quo must change. No matter what it is, no matter what you came in this morning, whatever your current state of affairs is, whether you don't know Christ or whether you do know Christ or whether you're maturing in Christ, your status quo must change if you're going to truly follow Jesus. We see that in this, this text, in this context, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. This is this miracle that has just unfolded. We covered that last week. He's just been risen from the dead. Four days he's been dead, and this is a huge miracle. It's not just one of Jesus' miracles. It's a huge miracle, one that had never been seen, heard of. Now, we have heard of people coming back from life if they're on the table in the hospital and they flatline for 30 seconds. And they come back, and we hear stories of, oh, people saw a light, and, and, and God just wasn't done with them on earth yet, and so they were revived. And, and there's, there's stories of that. We know that. But for someone who is dead for four days, I said last week that after three, they felt like the soul left the body. That was what the Jews believed. That's crazy. Not buried and rising out of a grave after the grave's been sealed. So Jesus has just done this thing. This power of God on display and his words and his actions divided. They challenged people. They always caused division, in fact. No wonder why there's a division in our country. No wonder why there's even division. Get this, this is a surprise all of you. I know it will. There's even division in the church. Take that in for a second here. I know that's a tough one today. But it's why, because Jesus always brings about these actions and calls for these things. People grow in conviction, and he always challenges. He challenges the status quo of our lives constantly. 
So what's the response here in the text of people seeing the power of Jesus, hearing the gospel in verse 45 and 46? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, they believed it was easy for them to believe. But listen, on the opposite side, but some of them who went, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, many come to this text and they say, well, maybe they were just enlightening the Pharisees. They were telling the Pharisees what Jesus had did. But because of the way the text flows, we know that's not true. They went and told on Jesus, if you will, because they were skeptical. And you'll find out why they were skeptical. Some believe here and some don't believe. And it's true of our culture today. And as I was looking at this text, it got me asking this question. How do religious people, the Jews, right? Those are the ones who witness this. How do religious people not believe in Jesus? Do you know the answer? (laughs) I want to talk to you later. I want to know more. Why do religious people not believe in Jesus? That's why I love our kids in worship. The Jews clearly didn't believe. They were blinded. They were prideful. They didn't want to acknowledge Jesus. And you'll see why they were threatened by him. And I would offer that many who don't believe in Jesus, and if that be you today, you're threatened by him. In verse 47, we see that the Sanhedrin is put together. It says, so the chief priests, those who had been told, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to, to do? What are we going to do for this man performs many signs? Now, many of you might just not know as you ask, what is the Sanhedrin, this council, these Pharisees? The Sanhedrin was the central court of the Jewish people at the time operating under, and you have to know this part, they were operating under Roman jurisdiction. So it was concerned with political and religious life of Israel from a day-to-day basis, but they only were allowed to do that under the permission of the governance of Rome. And so they had kind of a cap of authority over them, but they had a lot of freedom. And we don't really understand because we don't live in that. The only thing that I can make this analogous to, that, that I could illustrate this by, as if you had, like, let's say a church government, or maybe you know churches like this. Sadly, there probably are churches that rule over your lives so much that they dictate everything about you. They tell you what you can do, what you can't do, where you can go, but it's more political in nature. We have such a separation of church and state in our country, we don't really understand this. But they served as this council, and they had a lot of authority, but only under the Roman state and government. And a high priest was the chair of 70 people in this council. Think about that, 70 people. And the nature of the high priest historically in Judaism, as we know from the Old Testament scriptures, That was the mediator to God. And so the high priest, Caiaphas, at this time is the mediator. He speaks for God. He's the mediator, the high priest, the one person that goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple one time a year to atone for all the sins, to meet God, attach the bell around him because in the presence of God he could die. But Judaism had swayed from God. And you have to know that as the scene is set again. Judaism had wandered away from God. And so this council, mainly Pharisees and Sadducees, this party, the Sadducees are majority, Pharisees are minority. There's a pseudo-religious political party of hoity-toities, I would call them. They're better than everybody else. They, they're closer to God. They know the law. They're super religious. And Jesus confronted them all the time. He says, you're so concerned with the outside of your cup, how you appear to people that your heart is wrong and it needs to change. 
Some of them are more socially influential than religious. So it's this worldly mix that's grown into this group, this council, and they were not in alignment with God's desires. They are not, as our leaders and churches should be, they were not humbly, humble and godly and faithful men. And so they meet together in an attitude of alarm. Why? Because their status quo is about to be challenged. Their status quo is in jeopardy. Their method of confronting Jesus and to protect their status quo, it wasn't working. And so this raising Lazarus from the dead, undeniable, is kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. If they don't do something, they will lose their rule and position. Rome will sweep in and gain full control, and they cannot have that. And I only set that tone for us because you and I have that attitude about following Jesus. He's threatening to our life in many ways. Why? Not threatening in any other way than he wants to change us. And in our sin and pride, we don't know if we want our status quo changed. So in verse 48, you see this big concern. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take both take away both our place and our nation. Look at that. If we let him go on like this, he'll take away our place of position, of power, of comfort, our little gathering. He'll dismantle that, and he'll take away our nation. As if the nation of Israel is threatened. See, this is how much they trust God, that that Rome could come and destroy. Remember, the children of Israel have been through ups and downs, and God has continued to be faithful. And they say, if we let him carry on, This is ironic because they don't think he's God. If they let him carry on like this, then their whole place will be dismantled. And this is not necessarily just a political national concern as much as it is a personal one. You've got to remember, each person came to that council with conviction and fear or faith, and, and they wondered. And so it was like, do I want to lose my comfort and place and it threatens the status, quo, the status quo. But is that really different as it is here for us today? Jesus is that threat, if you will, to our status quo. What, what does he threaten? Think about this just in an American way right now. Think about your rights. This is the culture we live in. We're a bunch of entitled fools in this culture. And we really are. And I say that including myself. It's just a mindset we're ingrained. Think about it when, when some mistake happens with your charter bill. You know what I'm talking about now, right? Like, they can't do that. I'm the customer. That's just ingrained in us as a people. Like, I have rights here. I have rights to be safe. I have rights to a home. I have rights to my health. Think about when you go off, and we live in this world, you know this, with Josiah. When you go off and a doctor doesn't know what's going on with you, you get angry about that. Like, oh, how do they not know? They're supposed to be like the creator of the universe? No. We get upset by these things. I'm supposed to be able to just have my money and my success and nobody else tells me what I can and can't do. I do what I want, when I want. Nobody should threaten my status quo. Just leave me alone. I dictate what that is and everyone else should not only support that and love that, but listen to our attitude. We think that others should preserve it. If we're really true with our hearts, 
That's really how we think at times. Christians especially are not exempt from this. I have a right to my comfort. I don't need some pastor in jeans and a really nice button-up shirt. (laughs) Randy told me that today. Where's Randy? Okay, Randy. It's not. Okay, there he is. I don't need somebody telling me what I'm bad at or what I should be more good at. Christians are comfort, and we we love to sing. We love to, to gather as a people. But if God comes in and he challenges us and says, I want to change your status quo. Whoa, 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 whoa. I come to church every Sunday. I give some money. I'm just cruising along. What are we asking here? Think about it. But remember, if Jesus is to be followed, then my status quo must change. It's not an option. He came to do that. Now, verse 49 through 53, I'm going to read this whole thing, and I'll gather back. It's kind of ironic here. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's speaking in wisdom here, but here's the irony. Nor do you understand that it's better for one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He didn't know that he was doing this, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but for also to gather the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that that day on they made plans to put him to death. His plan was ironic in nature. He thought he was speaking wisdom to the rest of the Jews, say, we should kill him, not knowing that God in his sovereignty was above that plan. It's paradoxical by their attempt to preserve the status quo. Think about this. I want you to think about your own heart in this. By their attempt to preserve the status quo, the Sanhedrin actually contributes to its overthrow. For the elimination of Jesus will in time become part of the political and social ferment which will bring about the very destruction they so dread. Isn't that true of us? Think about your life when you try to keep it all together. Your plans, right? I have this set of plans. My perfect plans are in order. And when I try to keep that all together in my own strength and power, does that usually go well or not as well as we would have thought? Our plans never really fulfill us the way that we thought. They never fulfill us or come into fruition the way that God's plans do. I have countless examples of this in my life. Too many to even name where I want to do my own thing and I want to do it my way and God just kind of lets me go and says, have fun with that. That is not going to deliver what you think it will actually contribute to overthrowing your heart in some way. When I get off track in that way, and so these Jews are off track, and Caiaphas comes and he says, I've got an idea. We can get rid of him forever, not knowing that God's plans rule all the time. I love what Bruce Milne says about the council of Jewish leadership in this account. Listen to this. He says, these small and frightened men clothed in the robes of authority which are in fact only a covering for pitiful weakness, are the unwitting instruments of a mighty divine purpose. These small and frightened men clothed with this attitude of we are righteous, we know everything. Think about the spiritual implication here. We're good with God. We're actually cornering the market in this whole religion thing. Are covering for pitiful weaknesses, unwitting of God's divine purpose. You see, for the Jews... It's not about God anymore. At this point in the story in human history, it's just not about God anymore. It's about their rights. 
It's about their status quo. It's about those rights that need to be protected. Think about your life through that lens. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you claim Christ or not, think about that. Through that lens, what does God not have my full devotion in? As I say, it's not about God anymore. You'd say, oh, it's always about God. I would say, is it all the time in every area of your life? What does he not have your heart in? We all hold little things back from God. What things have you just not surrendered to him because you don't want your status quo to change? Is it your finances? Yeah, I'll grow in Christ, I'll serve Christ, but my money's my money. I make my money, he can't have my money. Maybe it's that. Is it your addictions? These are things that my heart is just drawn to. I can't prevent them. That's just, that's your deal. Is it your recreation? I like to, and I'm not saying recreation's a bad thing, but I put this as an idol before me. This is what I like to do. This is where I spend all my time. God doesn't really encroach upon that. Is it my retirement and comfort of saving all? And I'm not saying saving's a bad thing. That's a great thing. But like I have a set list of plans of things I'm going to do. My status quo. How do religious people not believe in Jesus? When it's not about worshiping God anymore. Think about it. That's not even on a, like off track. That's a different track entirely. And we need to check our motives in our status quo. Some of our status quos, from a worldly perspective, are really good right now. We like them. We're comfortable in them. Some of us here may not have good ones. Maybe we're struggling and something needs to change. Regardless of this, there's a truth here. There is a set of rules that I should live by regardless of my status quo. That's what the Bible is. Not a set of rules in this God's a cosmic cop, but God has a law. I've said this before. He created us and knows how the world should function. He knows how our lives should function and what's going to be most fulfilling and pleasing. God calls for obedience to his way, his law, his desire. He is to be worshiped. Whether we do that or not, he is to be worshiped. We are to love him wholly, all of us. And I'm not just saying every one of us. I'm saying all of us, our whole being is to worship him. Every part of our life, not one thing withholding. I think of Cain and Abel back in Genesis. And we know the story, and if you don't, God confronts, if you will, Cain and Abel, and the first sons, if you will, pass Adam. And, and he says that he wants their offering. He wants their worship and devotion. We know that Abel did right by God, and he gave him an offering. But Cain withheld, and God confronts him. He says, Cain, like, if you do well, won't I be, like, proud of you, good with you, but if you do not do well, if you withhold from me, if you don't desire to obey me or worship me, is sin crouching at your door? We know the rest of the story in that, what sin did in Cain's heart. He got rid of the problem. He didn't want his status quo to change, so he eliminated the opposition. You and I, we don't do it all the time. We don't submit to God's ways all the time. We don't obey God in everything. We fail time and time again in this. Our status quo, because of our sin, is dead. That's what we are, punished, condemned, apart from Christ, doomed to die apart from God, no heaven, which is exactly, if you can see this and tie it together, why Jesus comes to the earth. Because he said, all of you, no one's righteous, no, not one. All of you have a status quo of deadness, of condemnation. 
And that's why he came. He said, because you fail, because you sin, I came to change that. He came to change it. Because of Jesus, my status quo can change. That ought to be hopeful as we look at a text like this, as we confront Jesus, even a Jesus that wants to change our heart and, and upheave, if you will, our lives. He will change and can change our status quo, which is the interesting part of this passage in verse 50 as it was unpacked. Jesus is a threat to the nation as a whole. The irony there, the purpose of God is above all of that. In saying that, Caiaphas is actually unwitting as a prophet because he's actually proclaiming the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for us. Your status quo can change because Jesus took your place, the very purpose for which he came. He came to change your status quo by taking your place, which caused your status quo to be your status quo. He says you couldn't get there yourself. You got to think in terms of the Jewish temple, the temple of model of lamb sacrifice here, this model that Caiaphas was leading, this continual atonement for sin, going to sacrifice animal year after year, going to sacrifice the lamb to atone for the people's sins, connect with God. And here Jesus is right in front of them, challenging their status quo, the perfect lamb of God lived righteously for them, and he is the one that will put an end to all the sacrificial system for the rest of time. The irony is thick here. As he awaits the Passover lamb, he is the one that will substitute, take the place for sinners. And they say, we can't have that. We're good with God. More amazing is not just the sins of the nation of Israel, which they were waiting for, he prophesied, but those of people outside of Israel. Look at that, verse 52, and not for the nation only, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, including the Gentiles, those who we, most of us, belong to, into the people of God. The nations in every age gathered together, being accomplished. Ironic, because the chief priest, the high priest, is fearing the destruction of the temple and its systems, not realizing that Jesus himself, the true temple, that the Jews will destroy themselves, will raise himself back up and become the place to which all nations of the earth will come and worship, as foretold by the prophets. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, you have to see this story for what, what it's worth here. Caiaphas, and think he's doing a very human, protective thing, is actually fulfilling the purpose and plan of God. God is over even his wickedness and his evil intent. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Because of Jesus, my status quo can change. So if you come in here, and you come in here apart from Christ, not knowing Christ, because of Jesus taking your place by his death on the cross, your status quo can change. Because of Jesus, all your situations where you find, man, I really wish this would, that can change. I'm not saying it will in all the ways you want, but you can have hope in eternity. God provided him by his grace so that our status quo, status quo, our state of sin could change. Steve read this earlier, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his own love for us. Well, while we were still sinners, that was our status quo. He died for us. Christ died for us. That is the most amazing news 
that I could ever speak for any of us. The most amazing news I could speak for any mothers in this room on Mother's Day. The best and most amazing news you could impart to your children if you are a mother. Romans 5.8, that Christ took our place. Our status quo can change for non-mothers alike, for anyone else in this room, for everyone. That is the greatest news that Jesus Christ has come to change our status quo. God loves and offers grace to us in Christ. But we must respond with a willingness to surrender our status quo. And I think of the rich young ruler in his life when he approached Jesus, and many of us know this gospel story. He came to Jesus. His status quo was, I've fulfilled all the commandments. I've done everything that you've asked, Lord. And And what does Jesus ask him? He looks at him in all his wealth and position and all of his religiosity, and he says, I'll ask you one more thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. What was he doing there? He was challenging his status quo. This young man, this ruler with wealth, comes in front of Jesus and he says, God, I've done everything you've asked. His status quo is pretty good. And he says, ah, let me change that a little bit. And he threatens it. And Jesus said, you've done well, but you need to do one thing. Go and sell it all. And the guy says, I don't, I can't do that. Your marker of true repentance, and this is for believers and unbelievers alike, your marker, my marker for true repentance, true salvation, true obedience, worship, true surrender, which we'll sing about in a moment, is the answer to this question. Will I surrender my status quo to Christ or will I selfishly protect and defend it? That's your marker to true repentance, true obedience, true salvation, true faith. Will I at all costs surrender that to Jesus when I encounter him or will I seek to protect and defend it? If God speaks to my heart and says, I want you to go across the street and tell your neighbor about Jesus, will I... They might think I'm weird. They might like think I'm one of those religious people. That might, Maybe it's in the workplace. That will challenge my reputation. If God speaks to your heart and says, I want you to adopt children, bring them into your home. You have a home where you could adopt children. That's like more complicated. That's going to like, I don't like all the kids in the relationships. If God speaks to your heart and he says, I want you to go to a a, a to be a missionary in a foreign country, to, church, to plant a church. Ah, it's not really my plan that I was on. God does that all the time, and I believe each and every Sunday he challenges our status quo. and says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to surrender. This is where I want you to go. This is where I want you to grow. And he does all of these things. Will I surrender that, or will I protect and defend it at all costs? So I'll close with this. Just ask this question of your own heart, and I pray that you think about it through the day. What areas of my life have I kept all for myself? What needs to and ought to change about my status quo? Friends, if you trust it all to God, as we're about to sing it, sing together, then he offers life, hope, and grace. Jesus died in our place so that we could live. I owe him. You owe him everything. So friends, go and give him everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious. You are good. 
And Father, we are in desperate need of our hearts to be changed. Father, I admit that even in my own life, my status quo is something that I'm comfortable in. There's things you ask me to do, and and sometimes selfishly, I just reject them. I disobey them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And Father, I pray that you'd continue to do that in my heart as you're changing me. And Father, I'm thankful for grace that each and every time I do, you still look on me in love because of Christ. And Father, that grace is not an excuse. It's a provision you've made for us, born of your love and goodness. And so, Father, I ought to, in my life, abandon myself and my desires to follow Jesus in the way that he ought to be followed in his kingship. Father, I pray for us as a people, if there's things that are desperately needing change in our status quo, that we would seek Jesus in these things. Father, first and foremost, for those that don't have a relationship with Christ, many in this room, I believe, that are apart from you, that they desperately need to trust in Jesus at the cross in repentance and faith. Father, turning from their sin and seeking your forgiveness. Father, you are God of great grace that offers salvation today. May we take hold of it. And Father, for those of us who know Christ, Maybe you're calling us to release a certain something that we've held on to tightly. Father, maybe our status quo definitely needs to change in our commitment to following Jesus. Father, would you have your way in us as a people of God that we would take great steps of faith, that we would be people of worship, that we'd be people of great surrender, not just to sing about it, but to go and do it and to be your missionaries in a world that desperately needs their status quo to change. May you be glorified and honored. May you shower your grace and love upon us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, I want to leave you with this in Philippians, words of encouragement as we go out today. In verse 8 of chapter 1, it says this, For God is my witness, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you are a mother, happy Mother's Day to you. If you are not a mom, Go and celebrate God today. Worship him. Uh, Russell and I have been talking about this. I often say go in peace, but as a culture changer to who we are called as a people of God, I'll say this. You are sent. Have a great day.